Thank you so much for that prayer. The greatest event that ever occurred in the history of mankind, and I don't think it's even close to, and I'm not uh, even saying this is a hyperbole, the greatest event that ever occurred um, was the cross of Jesus Christ. It is when the divine intersected with humanity. Uh, the cross of Jesus is greater than even the incarnation or Christmas because the incarnation uh, became so much more significant because of Good Friday. And Easter, the resurrection, could only happen with the death of God. I don't think I am hyperbolizing or overstating my case, but in Mark chapter 10, as Jesus walks toward the cross, he is walking toward the greatest event ever in the history of mankind. And that cross, though, is an event that is um, a death, the death of God by the hands of man. But what we do in humanity as people is we somehow have turned the cross of Jesus Christ into a version that is misguided, uh, ugly, and even dangerous. We try to somehow popularize it, acceptable, and um, in, in some ways uh, muted, uh, more acceptable, so that it's, uh, it is no longer really the potency of the cross of Jesus. You know, when, I was, when we were raising my two daughters, uh, both of them danced when they were in junior high school and a little bit of high school, well, in high school too. But I remember one of the first uh, parent uh, meeting that we went to for one of our girls' dance group is that uh, we were at the meeting and the, the parents and the, the, the people who were in charge were talking about shirts and they talked about how they're going to make shirts and they're going to bedazzle it. My wife and I had no idea what bedazzling meant but they talked about bedazzling bags and shirts, and later on, it's, what I found out is that they take a, a normal shirt, they print something on it, and they put all these little sequences, they glamorize it, and I've been told it's, it's uh, what is it called? They bling it now. I think that's the, the current term if you're raising girls who dance right now. They take something that is ordinary, they glamorize it so that it feels different. Listen, what has happened to the cross of Jesus Christ is that some 2,000 years ago, the initial followers of Jesus saw it as a reminder of the agonizing, cruel death of the Lord. But over 2,000 years, we've bedazzled, blinged out, glamorized the cross to make it popular, and it has lost all potency. As Jesus walks toward the cross, uh, he says this is the most significant thing, uh, the greatest event. And, and as he talks to his disciples, he tries to gently remind them to, to not be misguided in their reframing. So would you turn your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 35, and we are in the series of the Gospel of Mark. We began last year, and we'll finish it sometime toward Easter. 
I won't read the whole thing in chapter 10, verses uh, 34. He talks, um, he's talking about his death in verse 34. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And, he said, and they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I'm going to look at this passage in two parts, the way, of the, way to the cross and the way to glory, the way to the cross. Mark chapter 10 is when uh, Peter confesses that you are the Christ. So from chapters 1 through uh, 7 or 8, Jesus has been trying to teach and show that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man, that he's not simply an ordinary prophet, but he's uh, something ordinary, God in the form of a man. And when Peter uh, began to understand, oh, you are the Christ, the Son of God, then Jesus begins to turn the conversation a little bit, not simply to who he is, his identity, but what he will do and the ultimate thing that he will do, the greatest thing that he will do, and which is to give his life a ransom for many. And so you'll notice uh, from chapter, um, uh, post chapter 8, he repeats this over and over and over again, that he is walking toward the cross. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 9, verse 31, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. Jesus did many things while he was on earth. He was compassionate. He was just. He did miracles. He taught. But really... The ultimate reason why he came, um, his purpose of his coming is, is, his, is the cross. And we see that again in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. And he it gets into detail, and, and just in case people didn't uh, get it or they uh, don't take it literally, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And verse 45, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it's a well-known passage in love for a lot of people. This is their life verse. And if someone were to ask you, why did Jesus come? Is there a one sentence or one verse summary to the reason why Jesus came? Did he come to heal? Did he come to teach? Did he come to, to cast out demons? He came primarily and ultimately, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to give his, uh, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I want us to understand something very profound here. Jesus came for the cross. He came to die. But he did not uh, walk toward the cross because he wanted to. It wasn't his gifting. It, it didn't feel satisfying or fulfilling to him. It was not because um, some uh, humanly satisfactory reason. It, he wasn't trying to be true to his heart. And in fact, I've mentioned this passage uh, before in Luke chapter 22, verse four, uh, 42. He's at Gethsemane. He is agonizing over the fact that he will hang on the cross unfairly. He will bear the burden, the pain, the, uh, the punishment of the sins of all humanity throughout history on his shoulder. And he prays, is there any way this cup, and the cup is a euphemism for death and suffering. Is there any way for this cup to pass from me? Is there another way? And he says, Father, if you are rem uh, willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, the Son of Man, did not, listen carefully, did not want to wish to climb upon that cross. But the reason he did, and the reason why he says what he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, is because it was the will of God. Jesus walked toward the cross simply because God willed it, God wished it, it was God's purpose. And so the way of the cross is Christ, and, and Christ's purpose is the will of God. The Christ's purpose is the will of God. It, it wasn't self-fulfillment. It wasn't uh, to live out his heart's content. It wasn't to live fully his gift. It was primarily and purely to live out the will of God. Of God, But the disciples refused to listen, and they had a different agenda. They were bedazzling, they were blinging out, they were glamorizing the cross to their liking. So while Jesus was to be delivered up to be killed in Mark chapter 9, verse 34, immediately after Jesus told them, I'm going to be killed, the disciples argued with one another as to who would be greatest. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, this is at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. This is the night that Jesus will be betrayed and he will be arrested. And it's during that time, it says, Luke tells us, a dispute, an argument occurred among the disciples as to who would be regarded as the greatest. You see, this is what was happening. Jesus was going toward Jerusalem to the cross. The disciples thought that they were going to Jerusalem to sit on the throne. And so they were arguing, how are we going to share in Christ's glory? And this is what we see in chapter 10, verse 35 through 37. James and John, brothers, came to Jesus and asked the simple question, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I guess that's not a question. I guess that's a command. You know, it, 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 this, this statement is somewhat silly. It's like what kids do. Have you ever had kids, uh, your child, come up to you and say, Mommy, Mommy, can you do something for me? Promise that you'll do this for me. 
I'm not going to tell you what it is until you say you're going to do it. Right? And the, the three disciples come to Jesus, uh, grant this to us. I'll tell you, we'll tell you what it is. What is it? Grant that we may sit on your right and your left. And it's understandable what they were thinking. They were going to Jerusalem to take the throne. They were going to be liberators. Uh, they were going to kick out the Romans. And this will be a new kingdom. And Jesus will be king. And he'll, he'll need a right-hand man and a left-hand man. Number two, number three. Grant that we would take those positions of honor. And humanly speaking, it makes a little bit of sense. Jesus, after all, included James and John in the inner circle along with Peter, who had uh, insight and privileges into a lot of the comings. Um, and also, if you were not aware, the mother of James and John uh, was a sister to the mother of Jesus, Mary. So they were cousins. And in Luke's account or in uh, in Matthew's account, it's actually the, the mother of James and John who comes and makes this request. So it's a family affair. If you're going to take the, the throne, let's make sure that our family uh, it, you know, gets the positions of honor. And finally, the reason it kind of makes sense is these two are very ambitious, uh, vocal individuals. In fact, uh, along the way, no one gave them this name. This wasn't their legal name, but Jesus calls them uh, the sons of thunder. This, this was their nickname. Oh, these guys, they're just causing trouble everywhere they go. Humanly speaking, it makes a little bit of sense why and how they would make this request, but on the other hand, it makes very little sense. James and John were probably two of the youngest of the disciples. In fact, we know that John was the youngest of the disciples, and if you think about it, in an Asian culture, the, uh, the, the youngest of the disciples saying, I want at least a number three position. Uh, it was um, uh, inappropriate also because they were not simply asking the positions of privilege, but positions of exclusive privilege. We want your right and your left exclusive to the other disciples, including, listen carefully, Peter, who was recognized in, um, by everyone as the first among equals. And, but perhaps the reason why this was so inappropriate was because of the context. Jesus has been talking about how he was going to the cross to give his life, to be spat on, to be flogged, to be killed, and they are arguing about who gets the seat of glory. It was an incredible show of pride, and pride is at the root of so much of what we do and what drives us. 1 John 2.16 says the boastful pride of life are one of the three things that plague humanity. James 4.6 says that God opposes the proud. On the other hand, gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66.2, but this is the one to whom I will look for uh, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, Proverbs 15.33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor, pride, thinking too highly of ourselves is a sin that uh, befalls so many of us. 
But when we hear this, there are many, I believe, in our space who say, well, I'm not like that. I wouldn't be so audacious. I wouldn't be so inappropriate. But listen carefully. Pride, thinking too highly of ourselves, I believe, is a subset of a greater sin or more a rooted sin. And the sin that is beneath the sin of pride is the love of self, the love of self. And if Jesus' purpose is the will of God, I believe man's propensity is the love of self. What drives us, what gets us into trouble is the love of our self. The immensely influential philosopher and theologian from the 12th century, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas said, all sinful acts spring from inordinate self-love which hinders us from loving God above all else and tempts us to turn away from him. The first person pronoun I or ego, it's, it's what drives us. I is what we care about the most. I is what we think about the most. I is what we give our offerings to the most. I is what we are obsessed with more than anything else. Uh, let me uh, ask you something. What is it? What is it that you obsess over more than anything else? What is it that you think about, care about, spend your time obsessing over more than anything else? It could be a hobby, if you're a, a new parent, your child, etc. But I guarantee you, whatever that thing you're obsessed with pales in comparison to your obsession with you. You might think, I love my child, I'm obsessed over my child, I idolize my child, and your child grows up and disappoints you, and you say to your, your teenage child, after all that I've done for you, how could you do this to me? You see, your obsession is not with your child, but with you. All of our sins stems from the love of self. Why do we steal or, or commit adultery? Uh, it's because we care about our self-gratification more than the well-being of a neighbor or someone's marriage. Why do we gossip, slander, or hate? It's because we have this need, desire to satisfy our, our thirst for vengeance or revenge rather than being able to forgive and, and do what's good for that person. What is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life that John speaks of? It is still all three a different way of expressing a love of self, an obsession, um, an obsession with us. In fact, I cannot think of a category of sin that is not founded based on the love of I. And this is the dilemma that we face. Jesus says to the Christian, we are going to the cross and as followers of Jesus, we say, we're going to follow you, Jesus. But as we follow, 
we uh, reframe the cross in such a way we bedazzle it, we bling it out, we glamorize it so that it serves our purpose as opposed to the will of God. Listen, if you are a Christian, when we sometimes have to make a life decision or a momentary decision or we have to uh, calibrate our hearts, some of the questions that we ask ourselves is, um, what is it that I want to do? What is it that fulfills me? What am I gifted for? What maximizes my potential? What does my heart say? How is it that I can not disappoint others? I am here to say that all those, although are helpful questions, uh, do you notice that all of those revolve around the idol of me, of I still? You're still worshiping, idolizing, give, giving offering to the God of I. Rather, I believe as a Christian, the question that we need to be asking is not how do we satisfy my heart, but rather what is simply the will of God? What is God's will? What is God's wish and desire for me? That's what ought to drive the Christian. And if you're not sure how to arrive at that, uh, God gave us pages upon pages upon pages of what his heart's desire is for you and me. And if you're not sure how to interpret it, pray, ask others, be in a Bible study, be in a cell group, so that your life doesn't revolve around the idol of you, but rather the will of God. On the way to the cross, we also find the way to glory. The way to glory. In order to clarify to uh, the disciples, Jesus says, you know, I, I want you to understand that there's a difference between how earthly glory is achieved and heavenly glory or kingdom glory is achieved. Earthly glory is temporary and it is what belongs in this life. Kingdom glory is eternal and heavenly. Earthly glory, he says, is achieved, listen carefully, through power, through power. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, he's gently teaching them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know, if you just take a cursory look at earthly rulers, um, not only uh, throughout history, but even now, we will find that uh, rulers rule through power. And once they gain power, they will continue to motivate and, and keep power the best that they can. In, when it comes to Jesus, when he was born, if you recall, there was a particular ruler, a very powerful ruler by the name of King Herod. And Herod um, was an immensely powerful individual, but also at the same time secure. In fact, when the magi or the, the wise men came to Herod saying, we, we've been reading of a prophecy and, and, and the birth of a baby who will become king of Israel, and so insecure that King Herod had, listen carefully, had all the baby boys, two years and younger, slaughtered 
Who does that? Who does that? Herod had other kids. They were named Herod. And do you know what? Uh, how historians call this particular Herod? He's called Herod the Great. Great because he's powerful. And he gained this power and kept this power through fear and, 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 and really the, these torturous manner. But he says that this is not how it ought to be for us. Kingdom glory is achieved not through power, but through service. Kingdom glory is achieved not through power, but through service. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. There should be a contrast for us. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. I'm going to take three steps, and the first step is that of service. That as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we gain glory, and glory is not something that, that God does not want us to have. But we can be great, and God wants us to be great, but in a different way. In God's economy, it's achieved through service. That it is your servant, and when we talked about this a few months ago when we were looking at chapter 9. It's the same word that we get deacon from. It's the same word that they use to refer to waiters. The lowly servants. That greatness is not achieved uh, in the kingdom economy through power or fear, but through uh, genuine service of other people. Let me ask you a question. Think about the heroes of your life. And I'm not talking about like the Kobe Bryants and the LeBron James that you've never met in your lifetime. Think about some people who've influenced you deeply. The ones who've impacted your character and your soul. And I would venture to guess that those who've left a deep imprint in your life are not the people who didn't know you, but the people who did know you and still chose to sacrificially pour into your life for some reason. I, 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 I would venture to guess that those are the people who've made the most profound influence on your life. Who are the heroes in your life? When I was growing up, Uh, my father came to the United States first, and then my brother and me did, and then my mom and my sister did. And, and um, we were involved in a, a small uh, immigrant Korean church. And the person who, made, who had a profound impact on me was the youth director by the name of Peter. But let me tell you a few things about Peter. He's the kind of person that we wouldn't hire at Living Hope. Uh, no, 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 sorry, Peter. He wasn't seminary trained. Uh, he wasn't officially on staff, like a paid staff at the church. I believe he was a college student. But he directed our youth ministry because he was the pastor's kid. Uh, I'll confess, I don't remember a single Bible study or sermon that he ever taught. I don't even remember service. But I do remember this. For a group of immigrant kids who uh, really didn't feel like they fit in, 
on Sundays, we would come to church. We would have our service or whatever that it is that we did. Afterwards, he took the church minivan and drove us to play basketball. And for little boys wanting to belong, this meant a lot. And we entered these little tournaments. And after basketball practice, he would take us to this uh, Chinese restaurant, uh, restaurant on Western Avenue. And I don't know if it's still there, but um, he would buy us jajangmyeon, or like these black bean noodles. And that would be oftentimes a highlight of the week for us. And when he was especially generous, or we're not quite sure, he would allow us to order the double portion, which was a real treat for us. Or the champong, which is the, the seafood soup. I, I think those are more expensive, so we we're not allowed to get those often. I never, ever, 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 and this is so stupid of me, asked who pays or to even offer. We just kind of naturally assumed that he pays because he always did. But I, I want you to know that the pastor's family wasn't wealthy. He was a college student, like I said. I think he paid for our jajangmyeon uh, from his part-time job. I think some of it from his school loans, to be honest with you. But if you ask me who's a person who's made an, a, a deep, profound impact on my life, it would be, he would be one of them. And in fact, I still can see myself acting and thinking like Peter, that this is, this is what we do. You know, I have a feeling, those of you who teach children here, or teach youth, or teach college students, that at 10 years from now, the same question will be asked of a group of adults, and, and that leader will ask, who is it that made a profound impact in your life? And, and this person will say, yeah, I, I remember when I was a, a junior high student at Living Hope, my teacher, my youth teacher, my small group leader, he called me once a week. He, post, he, he commented every time I put up a, a post. He, he bought me fall when we legally are able to. So bless your heart for those who do so. How is it that we become great? Jesus says that it's not through power, but it is through serving others. But I'm going to take it a step, uh, a second step. Because uh, verse 44 says, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He's saying that greatness comes not only through serving others, not only through being a diakonos, but being a slave or doulos. In that society, a deacon, a diakonos, is like a waiter, a doulos, is someone who is owned by, he's property of another. A diakonos and a doulos can do the same acts of service, but this is the difference. Listen carefully. A deacon still does it out of free will. A doulos does it because he is compelled to. He has no free will. He forfeits his autonomy to his master. We are called, if we want to be great in God's economy, to forfeit our autonomy 
for the service of others. One author talks about this idea. Time and time again, through the pages of Scripture, believers are referred to as slaves of God and slaves of Christ. In fact, whereas the outside world called them Christians, the earliest believers repeatedly referred to themselves in the New Testament as the Lord's slaves. For them, the two ideals were synonymous. To be a Christian was to be a slave of Christ Jesus, when he was walking to the cross, did not do so because he wanted to serve others. He did so because it was the will of God. The characteristic of a Christian is that we do the will of God, not because it is our will. If there's a road to glory, it would be that of service. It would be that of uh, submission. And, and th there's a third step, and it will be that of sacrifice. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ's ultimate service, his ultimate submission led to his great sacrifice. And for him, that was the cross, the death on the cross. It was interesting, James and John asked if he, they could sit on the right and left hand, if they can share in God's glory. And he, he, Jesus replies, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, uh, to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, we are willing. And they said yes without knowing, understanding fully what he was saying. What Jesus is referring to, let this cup pass from me, it's his death. It's his suffering. And they said yes, not knowing, but we learn from history that James becomes the very first martyr of the Christian church. John becomes the very last martyr among the disciples that they, they did actually sacrifice. You know, oftentimes we serve people, we serve the church, we serve others, but under our own conditions. And, and Jesus, he's talking about this glory, kingdom glory. He somehow equates service to submission to sacrifice. Like they're all synonyms as far as he is concerned. That you cannot, uh, for in God's economy, you cannot truly serve unless you're willing to sacrifice. That... If it's not sacrificial service, it is then a selfish service. We serve out of selfish reason, and that's now no longer selfish, uh, sacrificial service. It is merely a transaction then. I will do this for this person, understanding and, and believing that this will be comp uh, given back to me. Your barista isn't nice to you because he likes you. Your barista is nice to you because he expects you to tip, and when you don't tip, they give you a dirty look behind your back, right? Sacrificial service is when we, when we don't want to, when we gain nothing from it, but simply because it is the will of God that we give. You know, Christians have had a way of reframing the cross over the millennials. We've watered it down, we've popularized it, we've made it 
socially acceptable so that the cross no longer represents the potent symbol it used to be. And church, I, I think it's time for us to understand that the cross is so much more when Jesus says, uh, take up your cross and follow me. It's not at our leisure. It's not at our comfort. It is not what simply meets our needs. Jesus goes to the cross, follow me, not out of our own power, humility, because we lack it, but out of what he has done for us. And we cling on to that and that alone. Would you pray with me? And I'm going to ask the band to come up. And would you do this? Would you take a minute? And would you imagine the Lord Jesus saying to you, take up my cross. And when we have in interpreted that in a way that is selfish, when comfortable and autonomous, would you take a minute and confess and repent of that? And, and we would uh, reclaim what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Would you take a minute and, and pray that?